and welcome to another episode of the Enter the Bible podcast, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Katie Langston. And I'm Catherine Schifferdecker. And today we have as our very special guest, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, who is a good friend to both of us and is also currently serving as the associate pastor of Tokyo Lutheran Church. Uh, Sarah is a theologian and author and podcaster and the founder of Thornbush Press, which is a, an independent Christian publisher. And she has her own podcast, which you should check out, uh, called Queen of the Sciences. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining us from Tokyo uh, today. I am so excited to be here with Katie and Catherine, and I love this podcast. And when you finally got around to telling me you were doing it, I completely binged the backlist. So anyone who is finding this for the first time, binge the backlist. It's so worth it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, today uh, we have a question from one of our listeners. And again, if you want to uh, ask a particular question, uh, something you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask or aren't afraid to ask, uh, feel free to ask it on the, on the website, enterthebible.org. So uh, the question from our listener today, uh, one of our listeners, is Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, in Paul's greetings to the various churches, he uses the words, God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why doesn't he mention the Holy Spirit? So Sarah, as a systematic theologian, we thought this would be a good question for you. All right. Well, answer number one is that Paul was not a bishop at the Council of Constantinople, so he didn't know better. <laughs> I was going to guess it was because Paul was a Lutheran and Lutherans don't believe in the Holy Spirit. But... <laughs> oh, well, not true. Oh, not just true. kidding, everyone. We just, just kidding, don't everyone. talk about the Holy Spirit that much. Okay. <laughs> Oh, and also probably because Paul did not know he was supposed to be crafting Trinitarian liturgical formulas for use in church forever after. Actually, oh. this is a great question because I always start my sermons with grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Which is from the, you know, many of Paul's epistles. I think um, mercy gets thrown in in the pastoral. So maybe they felt like they needed to supplement grace and peace with mercy. But it's true. He does not talk about the Holy Spirit there, which could lead one to believe that, you know, he is a binitarian, not a Trinitarian, or somehow the Holy Spirit is not important. So I guess because I'm a systematic theologian, thank you for giving that away, because this is how I'm going to approach it, which <laughs> is that it's, well, it's really easy to try to like, proof text the trinity by looking at isolated cases yeah. but trinitarian theology comes out of a, a synthesis and integration of like the entire new testament witness and i think you could even say some old testament witness but that's so controversial we won't go there right now so i just thought as an interesting experiment i would look uh, just do a little word search in Paul's um, epistles for spirits and like what he actually means like Holy Spirit, not like uh -huh. spiritual gifts or something like that. And I was going to list them all, but I got to just to Romans and there were 30 mentions of the Holy Spirit just in Romans. And I was, and there was like, it said 43 for first Corinthians, probably some of those are spiritual gift references, but I was like, I think we can make the point just fine with Romans. So yeah, 30 allusions to the Holy Spirit just in Romans alone. Wow. So, so Paul doesn't, uh, Paul does know the Holy Spirit. Paul thinks the Holy Spirit is important. 
Paul mentions the Holy Spirit, just not necessarily in that Trinitarian formula that we're used to today. Right. So, I mean, there's some kind of liturgical formula going on there when he's saying it, but it's not like trying to be the synthetic one like we get at the end of Matthew's gospel when he's giving the baptismal formula. And it's probably a good principle to know that because there are three persons of the Trinity, it is okay to talk about one or two of them and not the third in every breath. (laughs) It would be kind of exhausting every time you said God to say, and by the way, by God, I mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God (laughs) the Father is not God the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and then like you have to recite the Athanasian Creed every single time you say God. Let's just take that as red. <laughs> That's great advice. So, so let me ask a question though that 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 occurs to me as I look at this. Um, you know, obviously the creeds had not yet been formulated when Paul is writing, and Paul we know is one of the earliest New Testament authors that we have. Uh, and so, is it fair to say that Paul would have had? I mean, it, it's fair to say that he wouldn't have had the precise Trinitarian formula that we have you know, discerned uh, throughout, you know, that the church, the early church discerned through the creeds and those sorts of things. Um, So what can and can't we say about the the Trinity, you know, in, say, Paul or in the New Testament? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the problems with how Trinity is often taught or conveyed in a church setting is like that it's the starting point, but it's actually the ending point. (laughs) And so I think the best way, this will also sound very shocking coming from a Lutheran, but we should start with the New Testament experience of God, because the, the doctrinal formulas come out of the experience. So if you read Romans, for example, or 1 Corinthians or whatever, uh, any of the New Testament literature with an eye to how are they talking about what they have experienced of God, then clearly what's emerging for Paul is, of course, there is the one God, because he's a Jew. So of course, there's the one God. Yeah. And that, but this God's identity has, first of all, been supplemented by being father. And father is by definition definition a relational term. So it has to already imply that there is also a God, the son. And so that's who Paul talks a great deal about. This is Jesus, of course. And he's already experiencing Jesus as having lordship, which is somehow merged into the one God of Israel's identity, but also distinct. And this is why, you know, like you end up with words like usia and hypostasis trying to sort this out, but it's trying to give like a technical formulation for testing purposes against this primal experience that God is both father and son somehow, but they're not the same thing. And then on they're top also of that, one, but they're also one because it's yes. so important that there's the one. They're God, one, right? but they're distinct. How right. does that work? Well, like yeah. that's why you need 400 years of sorting this out before you get a formula that becomes widely accepted. Like, okay, this is the best. And again, the, the purpose of the Trinitarian formulas is to be a conclusion that's synthetic of all of this experience and reflection and liturgy and worship. And then if you add to that, you say, wait, looking like at all these references to the spirit that Paul has he also has a living experience of the spirit and so do his communities and I think it's helpful like to actually if you look through Romans again just as my example there's like a lot of different kinds of terminology about the spirit that shed some light on this so Paul can talk about just the spirit or he can talk about the spirit of holiness or the holy spirit or the spirit of life or the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ or the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead or the spirit of adoption And like, these are all the same spirit. It's not multiple spirits, but one spirit. 
And you see even in those that the spirit is of God, of Christ, of him who raised Jesus from the dead, which is interesting because that actually is a Trinitarian formula right there. It has all three huh. presents. But again, because Paul's purpose is not to write either liturgical or dogmatic formulas, but to reflect in a living way on the experience and challenges to the Roman community, then that's why it's like he's kind of like grabbing all these different places. But it's the, the synthesis of all of them that gives us what we call, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's the ending point, not the starting point. So, the, oh. so what I hear you saying, Sarah, that's a good uh, active listening kind of phrase, right? <laughs> what they teach you in pastoral care what i hear you <laughs> now is um this the doctrine of the trinity right the idea that that god is three in one right is not something that is imposed on the church from you know above and from human authorities right nasty nicene bishops right Right, yeah. that they're and they're but conspiring, it's that has, twirling that has, their mustaches. That's right. It's not a Da Vinci Code kind of thing, right? Where yeah. the church is where the church hierarchy is imposing so. But it's something that has kind of bubbled up or uh, or been experienced by the church as a whole. Right? They they experience. They know God, the Father, the. Uh, you know, as you said, most of them, at least at the beginning, uh, most Christians are Jews, right? So they know the one God, um, but they, the, but their experience of Jesus is such that Jesus is God too, Jesus is Lord, and then they also experience the Holy Spirit's work in the community, and Jesus Himself has promised the Spirit, right? Or right. the right. Right. So, so from that experience of the whole Christian community eventually we get these uh, these councils that 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 formulate uh, the the idea or or put into words this idea of a trinitarian god yeah to use a like a super trendy term now the doctrine of the trinity is emergent <laughs> it emerges <laughs> yeah. out of experience and yeah. out yeah. of the early scriptures and it's attempting to like basically look at all these data points, again, to use very modern terminology, and say, how do these all fit together into one coherent picture of the gospel and the God of the gospel? And so again, the, the purpose of the Trinitarian formulation is not to, you know, be a mustache twirling imposition and make people <laughs> believe something mathematically impossible, but to say, this is the best account we can give of all of this experience, all this scripture, all this, these data points, etc. And then the purpose of it is then to be, you know, know a, a constant like reference point or check for preaching proclamation evangelism ethics whatever and say all right like is this consistent with what we have learned about god so it works much more in that way than like your job is to make your brain believe in the trinity <laughs> like that's, right that's just not i'm afraid that's how it often comes across but that's yeah. not it's yeah. the intention of trinitarian doctrine at all yeah let me ask another couple of questions because in this conversation for sure you two are the experts and I don't know very much but um so my first question is is it tr isn't it true that the um that Jesus kind of brings the idea of God as father or is, are there yet some of those references in the old testament and then the other question I would have is like where in the old testament do you see hints of what eventually becomes you know understood what becomes formulized mm, that's the right word but you know formulated into the the doctrine of the trinity 
Well, maybe I can address that just a bit. The, the, the first question is easier in that, um, yeah, there are references to God as father in the Old Testament. I think oh. of, I mean, there's more than these, but the two that I can think of right off the top of my head are in Exodus 3, mm-hmm. where uh, God appears in the burning bush uh, to Moses. Uh, well, Exodus 3 and 4. Um, and says, Israel is my firstborn son, right? Uh, I think it's actually maybe the beginning of chapter four, but it's in that, in that thing about, in the scene at the burning bush where God says, uh, you know, say to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son, let my, let my son go, basically. Hmm. Um, So that's, you know, God is father, but where it's really developed is uh, particularly in the prophets, and I think particularly of the prophet Hosea, where, where there's an interesting um, kind of dual metaphor, right? So at, at points in Hosea, a big metaphor in Hosea for God's relationship with Israel is as a husband and wife, right? Yep. Famously, Hosea marries a woman who's unfaithful to him and God compares that to Israel being unfaithful to God yep. in a somewhat problematic <laughs> metaphor, right? Sure. Uh, but we won't go there right now. <laughs> That's another um, question for another day. But then, but then later in Hosea, there's these beautiful passages about God, uh, you know, carrying Israel like a child, you know, and I bore them in my arms and they did not know that it was I who carried them. You know, how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Uh, you know, I, I am God and not a mortal. So it, it just some really beautiful passages that I'm not doing justice to. But again, God is parent and specifically God is father. And there's other there's other instances, particularly in the prophets of God, as using that metaphor of parent and child. It seems to me, Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Jesus draws on those, but develops them well beyond what's already there. So it's not a total discontinuity, but it's picking up on something. And then, like in Matthew's gospel, especially the way Jesus talks about God as his father. And yeah. then because God is his father, he therefore becomes the disciples father, but again, not in an identical way. It seems to me that's, that's again, taking the seed, but making it sprout into something that had not grown so big and bushy before that pushed the metaphor way too far, but you see what I'm, I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I mean, just think of the Lord's prayer, right? Our yeah, father, our father, father. Right. Who is in heaven? Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. So it's certainly, I I think, geez, this isn't um, a new idea. Uh, But Jesus makes it, I think, um, much more personal, Mm -hmm. right? Our Father, uh, you know, or my, and as you said, Sarah, my Father, he talks about uh, him. Right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it grows out of the Old Testament. As far as anything close to kind of Trinitarian formula, in the Old Testament, um, not not as much as in the New Testament. Sure, obviously. of course, <laughs> obviously, right. But there are, you know, so I would say there's uh, again this metaphor of God as Father. There's certainly references to the Holy Spirit hmm. uh, in the Old Testament. Um, I think you know probably one of the most famous passages is Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, right, where the where where the Spirit comes and clothe, you know, revives the bones. Uh, and and has them you know they live again as a metaphor again for Israel and Judah in exile. Um, what you don't have is is kind of uh, what well what you don't have is a reference obviously to Jesus in the Old Testament explicitly or the the Son of God. Um, but do you you do have 
uh, references to son of man mm -hmm. and, and this Messiah figure, right? right. Son There's of, lots of messianic prophecies. Yeah, lots of messianic. And sometimes, and, and that does, that does move into some interesting um, ideas of the, the Messiah as son of God, right? Uh, I think of Psalm two, right? The, the royal Psalm, one of the royal Psalms uh, probably spoken first at the coronation of the new king, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and God says to the new king, you are my son, this day I have begotten you, right? Mm -hmm. And that's then understood later uh, in the New Testament as referring to, uh, to the Messiah. Well, it's understood in the Old Testament as referring to the Messiah. It's understood in the New Testament, obviously, as referring specifically to Jesus. Yeah. So there, there are hints, right? There, there are um, foretastes of the feast to come <laughs> in the Old Testament, but obviously there's not kind of a full-blown Trinitarian formula there. Right. Yeah. Because it I didn't think... exist yet because it was right. an end point, not the beginning point to Sarah's, right. you know, that, what, there, what Sarah was saying. There is, so you mentioned earlier the end of Matthew, right? The Great Commission, mm -hmm. you know, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there is actually, you know, it's not just that there, there's, it's there in the New Testament uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. The, the all the the again the data and the experience is there, and even that particular liturgical formula. But when I when people talk about Trinitarian dogma, like they're right, like very right, right. hung up that there's no word Trinity in the Bible. I, I loved what you said about the Old Testament. And I think as I've reflected on this over the years, especially again, as a Lutheran who's trying to reckon with the terrible legacy of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism in the church, there's like two problems in Christians interpreting the Old Testament. The one is to so throw away the Old Testament, like in the Marcionite Adolf von Harnack and you know, Nazi Christian so-called <laughs> approach that there's like zero continuity and you just throw it out entirely. Yeah. But there's also like the overreading of the Old Testament by Christians who want to keep it that both denies it its own proper voice, but also implicitly says that Jews are, you know, have darkened and evil minds that they can't obviously see Jesus in the Trinity in the, in what we call the old Testament. And so somehow we have to navigate between those two. And I think it's just helpful to say, you know, for Christians, old Testament is our scripture. That's why we call it old Testament. <laughs> and, but we are reading it as our scripture in the light of Jesus and his father and their spirits. And so it's from that position that we are able to find, like you said, these hints or clues along the way, but they are hints and clues. And we shouldn't say that right. they're like right. so bloody obvious that anyone who can't see it is just being like a stubborn blasphemer or something. Right. That's right. not what's right. going on. So I can look at the creation story and see God speaks his word and the spirit hovers over the water right. and I can see the Trinity there yeah. or um, more problematically i can see in the the tales of of joshua where there is the the um the commander of the lord's army who comes forward and joshua says are you on our side or their side and he's like no <laughs> <laughs> but then later joshua like basically crucifies these kings and buries them in a tomb and they never come out again it's just it's a super painful story but for me one of the ways i can cope with it is say that already the crucified lord is identifying with his enemies uh, mm -hmm. even the ones that he himself was sent to fight against but that is like 
I, I'm very clear, this is an explicitly Christian move coming from belief in Jesus as the crucified Lord and Savior. You know, it's not, it's not obvious within that text itself. Or then again, like in the prophetic writings, like to mention Ezekiel again, there's both the hand of the Lord and the voice of the Lord. Hmm. And it's very interesting that those are like two distinct ways in which the Lord manifests himself to the prophet. And so again, as a Christian, you can interpret those as, you know, son and spirit somehow coming forth from the father, but it's a Christian move. I think it's okay to make the Christian move, but we need to be clear. It is a Christian move. Yeah. yeah. And another classic Christian move is in, in uh, Genesis 18, where three visitors come. To oh, right. Of course. Abraham and Sarah, right. That's been interpreted from earliest Christian times as the Trinity. Like that wonderful Russian icon of the three. Yeah. I'd love that one. We should put it, yeah. we'll put a link to the show notes in that because that uh, to, to that, to that icon, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. And that uh, I would echo what you just said so that it's 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 a legitimate christian move but it is a christian move right a jew jewish reader would not see that in those three uh in those three visitors but um as as katie and i had talked about in a in a lightning round uh related to uh talking about the the servant song the fourth servant song in isaiah 52 and 53 um the scripture can mean more than one thing, right? right. Or it can mean, it can mean what it means and mean something more, right? Not contradictory, but added to, right? So that suffering servant song, you know, he was bruised for our iniquities by his, uh, you know, stripes, we are healed and the Lord has exalted him, right? Then, you know, a Christian can't help but, but see Jesus in that passage, even if Isaiah, when he wrote it, uh, or whoever wrote it, uh, didn't, didn't understand fully right? mm-hmm. uh, what, what he was writing. So yeah, hence, foretastes of the feast to come, um, a trajectory, we could talk about a trajectory that begins in the Old Testament and leads to the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, yeah wonderfully said, wonderfully said. And yeah. I think anyone, you know, who has an experience of writing anything, you know, people get stuff out of it that you didn't intend or see connections that you didn't notice. And you're like, oh yeah, I did that. That was cool, but I didn't mean to. So like, I'm a genius. So if we're not even writing scripture and we do that, like why shouldn't a prophet, you know, be able to contain so much more in the words than was like conscience in his brain or his scribe's brain or his tradition's brain, you know, like it's okay. That can happen. It does happen all the time. Yeah. Hey, so I, I think it might be helpful for those readers who don't readers, what am I saying? For those hearers who don't know uh, much about councils and creeds and such, could you give like a one minute or two minute thing? <laughs> so, I know that's a terrible thing to ask. <laughs> I'm a systematic theologian, but <laughs> like what, what do we mean by council uh, and creed? Sure. Well, the church has been having councils forever and most of them we forget about or ignore and probably just as well but there are there are four big ones there is the council of nicaea i i'm not going to be absolutely sure about the dates but i think it's the year 325 the council of constantinople in 381 the council of ephesus in 431 and the council of chalcedon in 451 that seems like too many of them end in one so i'm probably getting something wrong but i'm impressed i'm impressed that's okay so this is this is like after 
Christianity has emerged from its, its little Jewish cradle in Jerusalem, there are a lot more Gentile believers now than Jewish believers. And it is in that transition period out of becoming, out of being illegal to being legal and then being mandated. So that's where people get all their conspiracy theories about bishops. Um, any real bishop will tell you how comically little power they actually have. <laughs> And I'm sure it was the case back then as well as it is now, but it's, it's, it's this whole, and there's just this huge brew and ferment of trying to figure this out. Like there are so many opinions running around early Christianity. It was not controlled or suppressed. Um, so, you I mean, you, you can just adopt the position of being suspicious of what one I am, I'm not in this particular case, but what they're trying to do is figure out like, is Jesus the same as God? And if so, how? And the, you know, Arius, the bad guy, um, he, he says, well, Jesus is like the number one creation and firstborn of all creation using biblical language, but there's no way he's actually God because there's only one God, you know, and that's not a bad answer, but it doesn't do justice to the New Testament stuff. And so the kind of theological struggle is to articulate through these, these, you know, councils and theologians and meetings and intrigues. And, you know, it is all very exciting, but basically to say, how can we say, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God, but not identical, and not be tritheists, and, and be monotheists, but not the way Arius wants us to be monotheists. And like every possible flavor is come up with, and I think the reason why, frankly, uh, just for the test of history, why Trinitarian has, Trinitarianism has lasted is because it really is the best account of the New Testament data points. It yeah. does the best. And the other side, I would say, is the experience has sustained itself. Like churches can live out of this understanding of who God is. Yes, and yes. it isn't just persecution that made the other ones die off because, you know, they had far less control and surveillance than we do now. You know, you can't live out of a kind of Christianity where Jesus is not truly Lord and God. Correct. And you can't live if you do not have a living Holy Spirit doing things. Your religion is going to shrivel up and die. And versions of Christianity since then have tried that, they also shrivel up and die. Yeah. So there is, there's kind of like a, a proof in the pudding quality to Trinitarianism. And yeah. that's why I, even though, again, very shocking for a Lutheran, like I kind of push, push this experiential point because it's not just dry doctrine. I don't think doctrine is dry, but a lot of people think doctrine is dry, but it really comes out of this engagement with scripture and living with God that you actually have this connection to father, son, and Holy spirit. And I think that's where, you know, more energy should be directed in, in catechesis and, and liturgical planning. Yeah. Awesome. Well, wow. That was amazing. Um, thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you so much to all of our listeners. We could, of course, continue the conversation for a long time, and we hope that you will. Uh, so head over to our website at enterthebible.org, where you can get more great resources, reflections, podcasts, videos, Bible studies, courses, anything you could want uh, to know about the Bible. And uh, do us a favor as well, and please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app. And if you enjoy it, share it with a friend. Until next time.